Well, welcome, everyone. We are back in the book of Samuel. It's, uh, we've taken a bit of a break. There were lots of other things to cover uh, over the summer. We did some topical sermons, but we're in 1 Samuel chapter 23. If you have a Bible, please open there with me, 1 Samuel chapter 23. We'll be talking about the first 14 verses. Uh, before we do that, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of Samuel, um, for the Deuteronomistic authors, Lord, who were, um, wrote down, who recorded, Lord, your faithfulness, your covenantal faithfulness to Israel, to David, to your household, to your children. We pray, God, now that as we look at that, if we consider the history of our, our people, that you would renew in us, Lord, faith and confidence and grace and goodness, compassion and boldness. We pray, God, that we would be like our father David, if and when he was like our Lord Christ. We pray that you would open this word to us now, that you would instruct us and teach us and feed us, convict us and comfort us in exactly the way each of us needs. We pray all these things in the name of your son, and amen. Now, just to uh, play a little catch-up, what has occurred in chapter 22 is that David has fled uh, to the cave of um, Adullam. He's hiding now, and, and men are coming to him, flocking to him, a ragtag bunch of folks who are angry and dispossessed. Saul is hunting his life. Saul found out that um, some priests had helped David, and so he sent soldiers uh, to where they lived, and he slaughtered them. Um, and, and just to demonstrate, in case we were not clear from the previous chapters whose side Saul was on, uh, he went out and killed all the priests of God. And one of them lived, and one of them fled to David, and David said, uh, this is my fault, and now go with me, for I will be your shelter. That is where we left off. Now we turn to chapter 23, and we read, we catch up with what David is doing now. It says in verses 1 through 5, Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Calah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Calah. And David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Calah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Calah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Calah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Calah. Now where is this? Where is this city? What is this city? Less than three miles from David's hiding place in his cave, in his tomb, as it were, is an isolated and fortified city in an agriculturally productive region of Judah. It's a little breadbasket out there all by itself with no defenses. And David hears, because he has a very good network of spies, that the Philistines have come down. The Philistines are are riding high in the land because Saul is distracted. Saul is fighting the wrong enemy. Saul does not get who the enemy is. And so the Philistines now are laying waste to this small town. And what's fascinating about this is, is as soon as David hears it, he understands what his responsibility is, and that is to go and fight. It's not Saul's responsibility. David is understanding increasingly what his mission is. And it reminds us of the Lord Jesus. As time went, Jesus understood more deeply at each turn what it was that his mission was. Have you ever been reading the gospel and think, Jesus, how many enemies do you need? <laughs> Why don't you just focus on one for a while? Why is it that as the gospels go, he just, he's like, you know what? Bring me all the enemies in the land. 
I'm, I'm, not, I'm not satisfied in one area. I'm not satisfied with one set of demons. I'm not satisfied with simply Israel. Bring on the Gentiles too. And, and what you get a little bit here is this, this sense of David that this is what he's doing. He knows that he's the king. He knows that it is his responsibility to defend the land. So as he's acquiring the external trappings of being a king, right? There's these courtiers now. There, he has soldiers. He has a high priest. He has all these trappings. He looks like a king. And he's not satisfied to merely look like one. He wants to act like one. And that's what's important to understand in this. Now, his men have a good point. Uh, David, listen, buddy. <laughs> there, there's 600 of us, and there's this guy named Saul, and he has an army, and they're hunting us down. And it's hard enough to hide from him. Why do you want to go and poke the bear? Why would a little ragtag group like us go and take on this giant Philistine um, kingdom when we've already got Saul to deal with? And, and the answer that, that isn't given but is, impl- is just clearly implied is that it's his responsibility to do it. His followers are rightly afraid. But that fear is not an excuse for David to... to um, deny his responsibility, to avoid his responsibility. And this is a lesson to us. Now, lately, it's possible that you have been wondering exactly how many enemies are we going to acquire. I I know that we have said things and we've done things in the last two years, and some people are increasingly afraid. And I know that some of us are like, listen, you know, taking on the state is one thing, but do I also have to now take on my boss, my neighbor? Right? How many enemies do we need? How many fronts can we fight on? And, and, and what we are going to see <laughs> in this sermon is that it's the wrong question. It's what does obedience look like? What is your responsibility? And, and if God is on your side, does it matter how many fronts you're fighting? Now, it's, it's a very in, important question. Um, as a student of history, it's, it's widely known, you know, you never fight a land war in Asia. We've, right, we've been all taught this lesson yet again. They're very difficult. You also don't have a two-front war in the middle of Europe. If you are Germany, the thing that keeps getting them is having two-front wars. It was the thing that everyone was saying, uh, Hitler, don't do it. Don't have a two-front war. And when we had a two-front war, finally, when there was two fronts, an eastern front and a western front, we, be- we defeated them. And it's strategically, it's wise, right? Limit the amount of fronts in which you're fighting the enemy. But is, is that a worldly way to think. I mean, it seems prudent, but if your God is the living God, isn't he surrounding all the enemies all the time, right? Isn't it them who are outnumbered? Isn't it them who are fighting more on more fronts than they can handle? And, and what we see in this whole opening section is a beautiful picture of how leadership ought to deal with the fear of, of, of their people. If you're a father, how should you deal, deal with your wife's fear? Your children's fear. If you're a master, how should you deal with your employees' fear? As the church, how ought the leaders of this church deal with the fear of the people? Because there are things to be afraid of. And what you see is that David doesn't say, what's wrong with you guys? Haven't you read the Bible? It says don't be afraid. He doesn't admonish them. He doesn't attack them. He doesn't ridicule them. He hears that they're afraid, and he says, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back and talk to the Lord again. Now, and does the Lord rebuke David? Does he say, what are you doing? Don't you have faith? Why are you coming back to me again? No, this, this is how you deal with fear. You keep addressing it until you realize that what you ought to fear more than men is God. 
David wants them to fear God more than men. And when they start to fear God more than men, when they have that assurance, then they say, okay, let's go. Let's do it. We'll follow you, David. A little tiny group of 600 men are now going to go and attack the Philistines. And where does that boldness come from? Where does this assurance come from? Well, what we read is that David has a network of spies. He gets information out. He learned his mistake from before. Dog the Edomite had uh, snitched on him, had given his, his position away, had told Saul, and that had cost people their lives. Well, David now is doing the same thing. He has spies. He gets news. But how many of you guys have something that you carry around with you every day that gives you the news? Right? Oh, man. Inslee is on the move again. We abandoned thousands of people in Afghanistan. Unbelief is rampant. Every day you look down and you get information just like David does. And what do you do with that information? How many of you guys open the word of God and say, okay, now that we've gotten this info, let's now hear what God tells us to do in the face of it. That is not generally how we respond, right? I bet most of you who are post-millennialists are flirting now with pessimistic eschatology. Now, what I mean by that is many of us who two years ago were like, yeah, God wins. We got this. Are now wondering if maybe those guys weren't right, (laughs) that there is like turmoil and treachery coming, and it gets all pessimistic, and maybe we do lose, and maybe the kingdom of God uh, does lose in the end. How many of you guys have been afraid? How many of you guys have begun to doubt these convictions that you have, that Jesus isn't just going to win, that he already did? Amen. (laughs) Sorry. I was overcome there for a second. When David hears this news, he says, okay, that's interesting. And then he says, God, what do you want me to do? And God says, go and attack them. And David says, okay. That's what he does with the news. The only information that matters isn't the information that comes through, through current events. If we based everything we did on simply what we hear, we're, we're just really loving the technology today. If we base our actions on merely the things that we hear, the news that we get, wouldn't we be more like these other Israelites, afraid? And say, listen, we have enough enemies. We have enough fronts. We have enough warfare. We don't need any more. David wrote in Psalm 119, 105, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It is dark. There are Philistines, and they are attacking this little town, and they're going to destroy this little town, and I am a hunted man, and it seems dark, and so he turns to the word of God. It says in Psalm 19, 7 through 8, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Now let's go back, and I'm going to read it again. Because if you are having a hard time controlling your emotions, the problem, the problem is you're not submitting them to the word of God. Because listen what happens when you read the commandment of God. Listen what happens. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. 
God's words give surety and wisdom, righteousness and purity and enlightenment. How many of you need any of those? Some surety, some enlightenment, some light in the darkness? I've heard from lots of you over the last eight days, and, and, it, and, and what I'm reminded of are these poor Israelites. How many fronts are we going to fight in this war? And, and I'm, I've come back from my vacation restored to tell you as many as it takes. As many as it takes. As many as the Lord gives us. And, and, and <laughs> the surety part isn't that you're fantastic and that you are the best you that you can be and everything's going to be fantastic. You ought to be afraid. You ought to be very afraid of the living God. You ought to be very, very afraid of the one who overcame the world. David filters the news that he receives through the word of God to see properly, to, to revive his soul, to have surety, to have wisdom, to know what to do. He doesn't just listen to the phone beeping in his pocket. Now, David is God's anointed one. He knows who he is. That's why he t- wants to take responsibility for this little beleaguered town. Because David isn't simply concerned about himself. He's not just sitting in his cave thinking, man, I'm surrounded on every side. What am I going to do now? He's not thinking of himself at all. He thinks, wow, man, there's this little town, and those poor people are going to lose everything unless somebody does something. He, he's thinking of the downcast. He's thinking of the besieged. He's thinking of the one who is, who is um, surrounded by the enemy. And he knows he's the anointed of the Lord. And so he turns to the great conspirator. Amen, sister. In Psalm 2, verse 1 through 6, this is what we read. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why? Why do they do it? Why are they plotting against this little town? Why is Saul Saul, plotting against the Lord God? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven's what? Laughs. Ha! David's only got 600 men. It may be too many, is what the Lord says. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Who ought to be afraid? Is it the Israelites? Or is it those people surrounding that town attacking the Israelites? Should you be afraid or should our enemies be afraid? Now, here's the question. Yes. Or the answer to to both questions is yes. You ought to be very afraid of God. You ought to not be afraid of the world. You ought to not be afraid of the enemy. They ought to also be afraid of God. The first victory you will receive if you are surrounded by enemies is you're demonstrating to your enemies exactly how it's supposed to work. I don't care how bad it looks. I don't care if I'm going to lose. What I care about is being faithful to this God who endured the cross to save me. This God who gave me a wife, this God who gave me a husband, this God who gave me children and a ministry and a job, right? <laughs> we get here this morning and the printer doesn't work. It's really, it's amazing what we do not realize, like how much blessing we have all the time. You know how easy it is to use a word processor and make documents in like five minutes? 
until you can't. And like, if I needed, I love first world problems. And that's like the first world problem that I want you all to go away from here and remember all week. How bad was it for us this morning? We couldn't print papers. How bad is it in Afghanistan? And, and we're like David in the cave, worried about David in the cave, opposed to the people who are surrounded on every side. We are the anointed of the Lord. Is God concerned about what is happening? Yes. Is he worried about the outcome? Now, does that mean you're going to make it through unscathed? No. But that was never the point. That was never the point. God is demonstrating in this story whose side he's on. And he's on David's side. It says in 1 Samuel 23, 4, Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. Now, does he say, you're a good boy, you're a tough kid, you're really strong, go on down there and, and you will overcome them? No, he says, go down there and I will give them to you. Now, that is what the Lord is saying to you about your enemies. You're afraid of them, and you, sh- and, and you should be more afraid of God than you are of your enemies, and, you, and this is the word of the Lord to you. Go down and fight them, for God will give them into your hand. Because he is mightier than you, he is mightier than them, and he has purposes and promises that he is fulfilling no matter what it looks like. David takes the fear of his people seriously. And what does he do? He goes back to the Lord, and he gets a a second word from him. And, And if you want to know what is this like... Are you praying to God about something you're afraid of? Have you been praying to Jesus about something you fear? And then in that process of praying, and in that process of reading his word, and in that process of communing with him, were you suddenly afraid of God more than of your circumstances? And you were, and you were revived in your soul, and, and you're enlightened, and you're bold, and you're ready, and you're, and you're going to say, okay, let's go do this. And then you go out, and what happens? How long does that last? Because this is the God who we serve. He has a mediator. He knows that you're afraid. And he will, he will send David back to you with the same word again and again and again, and, right? Until you're ready to obey. The word of God dwells richly in David. He is full of the word of the Lord. And he, he, it's enough for him. And, and it's even more than that. It's, it's enough inside of him. He is a stream of living water flowing out. He comes and he refreshes his people. And, and it doesn't work. It's not enough. So he goes back to the Lord. He gets more. He comes and he refreshes them again. And this is what we are supposed to do with one another. Now, imagine if you had a difficult week ahead of you and you came here. And you hear this fantastic music, and you hear the word preached, and you hear it read, and you hear it sung, and you hear it prayed, and, you, and you're refreshed by this. Now, you're going to go, and tomorrow you will find out that you are afraid of your circumstances again. And so you call your friend, and that friend, right, says, listen, I know that you're afraid, but don't be afraid because the Lord is with you. Go down there, and he will give them in your hands. And you're like, man, that's what Sunday was all about. Let's do this. And two days later, you're thinking, man, this is not working. And you turn to your spouse and you tell them, listen, I'm afraid. 
And your spouse says, listen, don't be afraid. Fear God. Fear God more than your circumstances because he's with you, and I'll tell you why he's with you. And da, 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 da. Now go, fight, win. <laughs> the Lord's with you. And you go, and you fight, and you win, but it doesn't look like winning, and so you become afraid again. Now, this is the process. This is why the Lord, the Lord wants the word to dwell in all of us richly. Because as we go, we need this mediation all the time. David doesn't just come down. We're going to see, right? They have this whole experience. And they're going to be surrounded themselves. And in that experience, he has to go back to the word of God again and bring that word of God to the people again to calm them down and teach them to fear the Lord instead of men. And that's what you need. The part of the problem in your life is that you are trying to get too much, too much out of too little. Now, this is not too little, right? This in itself is not too little. But if you go to it just, and, you, and you just eat little crumbs, or you hear something today, and then you don't think about it again, you're not refreshing each other with it. You're not having the word of God mediated to you beyond the Sunday morning sermon. You're going to have a lot of problems in your Christian life. Do you know someone in this church that perhaps could use a refreshing word? That perhaps on Thursday might need to hear again from the word, from the word of God. You, you open this up, and, and if you look, simply look up the word fear, <laughs> you will find lots that the word of God has to say about it. Is there somebody who could use that mediation? This is our responsibility. David's responsibility is our responsibility. Don't just have the trappings of being a king and queen in Narnia. Be a king and queen in Narnia. Right? Aslan is on the move, and we ought not to be afraid. And when you hear that the Lord God has won, that he is winning, that he will win, be refreshed by it and go armed with that to refresh one another. David doesn't get sick of going to the word going to the Lord, and the Lord doesn't get sick of having him come. That is, that is the best news that I have for you. The Lord is not wearied by your fear. He has a word for you, and what he wants is to you to, to not grow weary yourselves, but to feed one another, to buoy one another up, to gird up one another's loins, to encourage one another in the word of God. Now, what we see here is that David, a second time, is told to go and fight. And so he leads them, and they go, and they fight. And what happens? They win. Now, in this case, what does that winning look like? Well, it, it's actually, for a moment, doesn't look like winning. Because now they've come out of their cave. They've charged out into the field. They've attacked the Philistines. They've stolen all the Philistines' cows. The Philistines run off. And now Saul knows where they are. And so if I was one of these Israelites with David, I'd be like, David, dude, right? Our hiding, spot was perfectly, our hiding spot was perfectly good. I remember doing this playing paintball when I was younger. And I would sit there lying by the tree looking like a log with my camouflage. And I would lay there and I would lay there and I'd lay there. And then as soon as I got up, my brother would shoot me <laughs> because now he could see me. And I was like, man, if I would have just kept laying there. And I'm sure that these Israelites are thinking the same thing. Dude, if we would have just stayed in the cave... So what, what? Who cares now? We got some beef we're going to eat before we get killed by Saul? And, and this, is, 
This is one of those things that I love about the word of God. If you bear fruit, and it's pleasing in the sight of the Lord, and he likes it, and it's refreshing to the people around you, he loves you. And so you know what, he's going to, you, know what you do when you have a fruit tree after you've taken all the fruit off of it? You cut it. Now, have you ever thought about that poor fruit tree? He's just like, dude, again, I, I gave you all this fruit. Now you're going to come out here and start chopping pieces of me off? It doesn't look like victory. It feels like pain. Why are you pruning me now after I was so fruitful? Well, because the, the next year, you know what happens to the fruit? The fruit gets bigger. Right? Jesus gets baptized, and, and the, the heavens open, and here comes a dove, and here comes the voice of God, and it's all wonderful, and it's all beautiful, and the very next thing that happens is he's driven into the wilderness to be tested. Now, right? do you, do you want to have God the Father as your father? If you want him as your father, this is what it takes. You're afraid. He says, oh, don't be afraid. Go, and, and you will win. And then you go and you win. You think, but it doesn't look like winning because now there's more enemies. There's bigger enemies. And, but their leader, it's the same thing with David. He, he would fight, right? He's there with a sheep, and here comes a bear. And do you think he was afraid when he saw a bear? And what did he do? He, well, he punched the bear to death. Okay, and then later a lion comes and he goes, well, man, that looks scarier than the bear even, but I'm going to grab it by the beard. I'm going to punch it to death. And eventually when it came time to killing a Philistine giant, he was like, eh, I killed bears. I killed lions. When, when good things happen to us, right, that life comes. What almost always follows it is some death. What almost always follows it is a bigger challenge. They've, they've taken on the Philistines. They've won. Good job, boys. Now here comes Saul. So what are they going to do now? Well, in 1 Samuel 23, 6, we read this. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Calah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now, what's the ephod? Right? All, all those priests were wearing ephods, and they were all slaughtered. Well, this particular ephod isn't just a normal ephod. It's not just a robe that a priest wears. This is the one that you use to talk to God. It has the umum and the thummim, which are like fancy spiritual dice. And you say, Lord, what would you like us to do? And you shake the Yahtzee cup. <laughs> oh, this is what he would like us to do. Okay, let's do it. So, so this is what I also love. Alongside the, right? Oh, we defeated a, this enemy. Now we have another enemy. Well, now it's not just that, the, that David goes to the Lord and gets a word. Because pr- the process in that was, where, how is that working? It doesn't explain. How does David go to the Lord? Well, now what the Lord says is, listen, okay, I know that you're surrounded by even bigger enemies. So what I'm going to do, this is terrifying to you, I know. So now what I'm going to do is come down in your very midst myself. Because that's what the ephod represents. It's like the ark. It's like the tabernacle. It's the presence of the Lord. David puts it on, and he has the ability to talk directly to God. He has the ability to communicate directly with God. And, and, and as the danger increases, as the uncertainty increases, the presence of the Lord increases. Yahweh is no longer with Saul. He's no longer up where the tabernacle had been. He has come down into the cave with David, with his people. He has gone now into Calah with them, and they are now surrounded. And, and, and so David puts on this robe because he's been given it, and he says, okay, now, right? 
Now what I'm going to do is ask the Lord what he wants us to do now. He, did, did he want us to save the city or not? Yes, he did. Now, what does he want us to do? Because is the city that we just saved going to give us up? Because this is what's happened. Now, it was told Saul that David had come to Calah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? God said, I will give the Philistines into your hand. Saul, all, all by himself, is saying, oh, now, God, now the God's going to give him into my hand. Where did he get that? Well, he doesn't have the ephod. It doesn't say he asked God. He is a man who thinks he, ha- he has the knowledge and insight of God, and he doesn't. He keeps trying to make a connection with God, and it's not working. Why? Well, maybe slaughtering all the priests had something to do with it. Maybe trying to kill innocent men had something to do with it. Maybe plotting against innocent men had something to do with it. Maybe as his apostasy increases, the Lord backs away from him and draws nearer to the true king now, David. This is what Saul thinks. Saul is looking at the information. He's hearing it, and he doesn't take the information he's given and go talk to God about what he wants to do. He just presumes. Saul reasons, for he has shut himself, David, in, in, in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Calah to besiege David and his men. But David is undeterred by this. Now, what, there, there's two stories that this is echoing. One is from the Genesis. And the, can you remember a younger brother who was um, hated by his brothers, even though he had a robe of authority? And what did they do to him? Did they respect that robe of authority that he was given? Or did they take Joseph and throw him down into a, a pit, sell him into slavery, turn on him? Now, Jesus, does he have a robe of authority? Does Israel respect his robe of authority? Jesus is the younger brother with a robe of authority, just like David, just like Joseph. Now, are there, right? How many of you guys are hearing the story right now and you are completely and utterly disgusted? by the fact that these men that he would save now turn their back on him. Now, in this story, I am sure that you think you're, right? You can think of times where this has happened to you. I stuck my neck out. I put myself out there. I was faithful. Like David, I thought of the little guy. And then I got stabbed in the back. But this is why, <laughs> this is why discerning the word of God is so important. This is why reading the stories over and over and over again is so important. Because in this story, who are you? How many, how many times has God saved you? And you turned your back on him. Are, are you really David in this story? Are you the inhabitants of the city who get saved and then you see Saul coming and you know what happened, Right? You know what Saul did to the other town that helped David, and you hear that, and so you're willing to throw David under the bus. How many times have you maligned God? Have you disgraced him, turned your back on him, turned away from him because you were afraid? Again and again and again, what we see here is fear and how people deal with it. These people who he has saved, David, they don't go to him and say, hey, listen, you, you came down here. You clearly overthrew a larger army. You, mu- you must be stronger. The Lord must be with you. Can you talk to the Lord and see what he wants us to do? That's not what happens. And that's what happens to, in your life all the time. Part, part of why we hear news and it frightens us 
We hear news and it fills us with fear and we doubt. Part of it is, is because we don't read stories like this often enough and discern exactly who it is in the story that we are. It's like when we did David and Goliath. How many? <laughs> we always think we're David slaying Goliath. But you're the wimpy, sad, pathetic little army. And the Philistines, you know, they're, they're the enemy. And Jesus is David. That, that's how that story works. So in this story... <laughs> And, and what I found when I was studying this, when I was getting ready for this, is how quickly I passed over this part, and I didn't really find fault with those guys. I was like, yeah. They're backstabbers. They were saved, and they are willing to, throw, to, to offer the person who saved them over to Saul to save themselves. This whole story... At the heart of it is salvation. How did salvation come the first time? Through, God, through David mediating the word of God to his people. Now, Saul, there, there are threats on every side. Saul is coming. And what does David do? How, is it, how, right? how does he seek salvation? Well, he puts on the ephod and he uses it. It says this, David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Calah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Calah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Calah surrender me and, and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Calah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Calah, he gave up the expedition. Now, if I were David, you know how the story would go. I would put on that ephod, and I would hear from God, and be like, wait, they're going to what now? And I'd be like, okay, boys, let's slaughter everyone. Is that what David does? Is that what the Lord does, right? When you stab him in the back, when you turn your back on his salvation, when, when you malign his name, and then you go to him and you repent, what, what is his response? David saves the city twice. Once by get, getting up and going and fighting for it, and the second time by leaving it. Because self, and salvation is what this whole story is about. Now, it, how is it possible that the Lord, <laughs> how is it possible that David would depart and that would save the city? What we find in this is, is the shrewdness of David. He understands there are times to fight and there are times to flee. And in doing both, he saves these people. Now, for us, what I find over the last couple of years, over the years that I've known you, even, I'm not even talking about COVID. I'm talking much bigger now, meta. Most of us fight when we should run and run when we should fight. I tend to fight all the time, <laughs> right? I, I would not be like David here. I would be like, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. These people are going to pay. Some of us are like the Israelites who were afraid and would have never gone up unless David had led them. 
And so as we go, this is the discernment that the Lord wants us to, he wants us to see the story and he wants us to learn this. There are times that you bring salvation by fighting. And there are times when you bring salvation by running. Now, the circumstances in which you are, what you are in, I've heard from lots of people now. They're trying to figure this crazy world out. And it's really funny how, how life is. Because when you he- see other people's lives, it tends to be a lot easier to know what people should do. <laughs> right? I almost never have that kind of clarity for myself. What should I do? I have no idea. What should that guy do? I'll tell you exactly what you should do. Because what I, it, it's a tough time. There, it is a time where some of us should run, and there is, it's a time for some of us to fight. And there's, a time, right? there's some things going on where we should do a little of column A and a little of column B. And, and this is why we hear things. We, we, we are full of fear. And David goes to the word of God, and that is how he gets clarity. That is how he knows what to do. Are you Jonah or are you Job? Is the army outside the Philistines, and there's a David who's going to come and save us? Or is the army outside the Romans, and we're apostate Israel, and all of this stuff's about to burn down? Right? Because what did Jesus say? Hey, when they, when they come, if, you are in this, if you're in the field and you see them coming, this is what he tells them in Luke. Run. Don't stay. Run. Now, are we at a point where, right, what ought we to do? I know that we're afraid. But should we run or should we fight? Should some of us run or <laughs> some of us fight? Well, and what did David do? Did he gather information? Did he have councils of war? Did he appeal to the Lord? Did he put on the ephod and did he seek the will of the Lord? That is the only thing that is going to give us clarity. That is the only thing that's going to give us surety, right? Because... It, for a lot of us, this is what I, I like about history as well. You read and you're like, you read some of the reformers and you're like, well, some of them ran when they should have stayed in fight. Some of them fought when they should have ran. And some of them, it kind of really kind of six of one, half dozen of the other. But, but what I love is some of those stories where it looks so confusing. You know what the person was? Was sure. They were sure about what they were doing. Do you know why? Because they appealed to heaven. Right? Somebody like Calvin knew what he was doing. Somebody like Luther knew what he was doing. He was not confused about it. And why? Because they feared the Lord. Because they sought the Lord. Because they went to the word of the Lord again and again and again. And they dealt with their circumstances guided by the light of Scripture. God is not surprised by what is happening. God is not overcome by what is happening. And he has not left us bereft of any thought. We have it right here. What ought we to do in these circumstances? What story in the Bible are you living right now? This is my favorite counseling question. It always helps me diagnose things in like half the time. I say, okay, um, if, you were a, if your life was a story in the Bible right now, which one is it? And, you know, almost everyone says Job. <laughs> you know, okay, well, first off, no. We'll just, you're not Job. Pick another one. What story are you living right now? Now, I understand there's a, it's a grand narrative Right, we've already covered it. The Lord wins, yes. But there are lots of stories in here. Lots of enemies that are fought in various ways. Some are ran away, right? Some people run away and some people fight and some people do both. What story are you living? What is going on right now in America? What, what is happening? 
Would you rather be in a blue city in a red state or a red city in a blue state or a red city in a red county in a red state? Or would you rather be a red tribe in a blue state in a blue city in a blue county? Right? And I started to hear people, and I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and then I open the word of God, and I read this something, and I'm like, I, I'm going to fight. That's what, I, don't, I don't care what color the county is. I don't. Because, if it, <laughs> you, you know, uh, so many of us, we love Moscow, Idaho. And, and, and you hear stories. They, they have worse things going on there than here. Do you know why? Because, because they're doing... <laughs> The church in Moscow is massive, and it's very effective, and people hate it, and they're being attacked, right? We are a scrappy little group in a, in a cave, and some people are, are hunting for us in some sense, but they don't really know where we are, and they don't really care what we're doing. And, and in some ways, we have it easier than people who are living in red states. And when people start talking this way, I get very confused very fast, and I don't know what they're talking about. Here, how about this? Through the circumstances of the Lord God, you were placed where you're at. And so like David, what I want you to do is what does faithfulness look like now? Do you run or do you stay? David did both. What does faithfulness look like now? Are you putting on the ephod and are you asking the Lord God, what am I to do now? Or are you just hiding in the cave? Are you hiding in the Christian ghetto? Are you, right? Are you just, I don't know what's going on out there. I don't know who else is surrounded. I don't know what's happening. It's not my responsibility. You are a king and queen in Narnia, are you not? You are the priests of the living God, are you not? (laughs) Is it a black and white thing where we care about Christians and we don't care about anyone else? Do we only care about reformed people? Do we only care about CREC people? Do we only care about, what, upper middle class people? Where are you right now? Who is surrounded? What, do they need help? Are you surrounded and perhaps do you need to flee? Or do you need to fight? Now, the underlying issue in all of this is what David said to Abiathar in 1 Samuel twenty-two twenty-three. This is what he said. He said, stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. Now, whatever, you're going, whatever is going on in your life, husbands, did, have you said that to your wife lately? Moms, have you said it to your children? Have you called anyone in this community and said these words to them? Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safe keeping. Now, it's really popular right now to name movements after um, saints, right? There's the Boniface option. <laughs> That's a funny one. I want to call it the Noah option. What's the Noah option? Noah built an ark in which he would save a community and yet was a preacher of righteousness, according to 2 Peter 2.5. Did he build an ark because judgment was coming? Yes. Did that prevent him from preaching the good news, though? No. He built and he preached. 
Noah knew judgment was coming and so built a means to endure it and called people to it. Don't hide or shy away from the overwhelming odds. Do not fear men more than you fear God. Remember, you were once a slave in Egypt yourself. Your world is full of Egyptian slaves. Have you seen them recently? Have you seen them? Right? Is it just you and your little cave and your little family? And that's it? Or are you looking around and you're saying, you know what? It is going to get real rough around here. And there are a lot of really bad, dangerous men. And, and what has always saved the church are, bad, are, are dangerous good men. Did I get that wrong? I'm looking at you, Keith. The world is full of dangerous bad men. And what we need are dangerous good men. And what does a dangerous good man look like? Well, it's a man who preaches and says the word of truth and calls people to repentance no matter what, and yet is building an ark at the same time. He's like, yeah, you know what? There's no hope for you people. No, no, no. Unless you repent, then there's hope for you. And just to show you that what I'm saying is true, I'm building a giant boat in the desert. Now, if we were to stay here and not flee, it would look a little crazy, wouldn't it? Like building a boat in the middle of a desert. When the hordes came down from Central Europe to decimate Rome, this is one of the greatest things of history. I love it. These barbarians, right? The Romans are like, these barbarians came down out of the hills and they killed everybody except the people hiding in churches. That's because 200 years prior to that, we had sent missionaries north and we had converted all these people. And so they were the Christian invaders coming down, slaughtering the pagans. And anyone who fled to a church and hid in a church, they didn't burn those temples down because they understood what they were. And all the people who hid in them were saved. And this is what Augustine was talking about in the city of God, because in the city of God, he's dealing with the fact that the pagans are like, hey, we've given up our pagan gods, and this Christian god is here, and the reason that the whole city was burned down is because of them. Except for this minor fact. The only things they didn't burn down were churches. The church was a place of refuge for many Romans. It, it was as if the Christians had said to the people, stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you sh shall be in safekeeping. The green martyrs of Ireland who live in monastic cities like Glindelach chose secluded places in the corners of the world to build thriving communities who were devoted to God, were devoted to their neighbors. They, spread, they spent their days serving one another and copying books. And people are like, why are you, you live in the middle of nowhere on the edge of the world. Why are you spending all day copying books? Well, later when the Huns came and burned all, everything down, the entire catalog of Western civilization was preserved. It was an ark of sorts. And you go to these little monastic cities, and there's a tower right in the middle of it. And here all the monks would, and all the people who live nearby flee to the tower, and the Vikings and Huns would come, and they wouldn't be able to do anything to anyone. We were just in Portugal. And do you know what all the churches looked like from a certain period? Castles. Because every parish, the church was the church. But the other thing that it served as is that all the parish fled into the church, and it was a fortress. Their churches are fortresses. That, that's not so much what they are now. Now they're apostate and empty. But I thought, yes, this is, this is what I'm talking about, a church that's also a fortress. It's time to come out of the cave. It's time to come out of the cave of Abaddon the War you've been hiding. 
It's time to stop being afraid of your circumstances. It's time to consider the fact that there are people who are surrounded on every side. You don't have yet enough fronts in this war. We need more because hearts and minds and souls are at stake. Right? I, I mean, <laughs> is, is it just about poor little you and having to wear a mask to go to Costco? Is that the, is that the most difficult thing that we're dealing with right now? Do we have any proportionality of any kind? Have we lost our minds? And, and I, will, I will be the first one to say, listen, this, I know. This is how we lose our minds. Because, like, I've been more angry and focused on that than what? Any other problem that we have. Are there slaves still in Egypt? Are there people out there who, who need an ark? Are we preserving Western civilization in any way, shape, or form? Are we concerned about the little town out in the middle of nowhere that's surrounded by the enemy? And though we are small, are we concerned about what happens to them? Do we take responsibility for them? Who else is going to take responsibility for the people on your block if not you? If it's not you, who? If it's not now, when? We could run away and we could leave, right? We could let, what was here 100 years ago? Pagan worshiping tribes. Should we just leave it to that? I mean, they've almost retaken the place, pagan worshiping tribes. They're close. Their flags are everywhere. But is that why God put us here? To run away? Now, This whole passage, I want to go back now, and this is how we're going to end. Because there's a little subtle thing that's been happening all along. There's this one word that keeps popping up, this one concept that keeps coming back and again and again and again and again. And unless you really look at it carefully, you miss it. An interesting literary feature of these chapters is the repetition of the word hand. This began in chapters 21 and 22. Chapter 23, the word hand is used mainly as a figure for power. In verse 4, God promises to give the Philistines into David's hand. David has the the mediative ephod in his hand in verse 6. Saul was hoping that David would be delivered into his hand in verse 7. And this would have happened uh, for the men of Calah planned to give David into Saul's hand in verses 11 and 12. Earlier, in the earlier chapter, Saul and David were contrasted by what they held in their hand. Saul held the spear, David held the harp. One is a murderer, one is a liar, one is out for blood, and one is out to make music for the Lord. Now, the hand that holds the spear cannot grasp the harp player. It can't get his, he can't get his hand on him. No matter how he tries, no matter who he conspires with, he can't get his hand on the harp player. And eventually, the one holding the spear will be left empty-handed, while the one with the harp will grasp a kingdom. Now, are you holding a spear or are you holding a harp? Are you of the house of Saul or the house of David? Do you have some sense of responsibility for the kingdom of God, for the people who live in the neighborhood in which you live? Or are 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 you out for blood? Are you out for vengeance, right? You can pry this gun out of my dead hand. I, I, and, and this is, uh, I, I recently I had a friend, he's quoting, you know, rappers. What do you think I did with my guns? Sold them all? Right? He's making jokes. This is, he's, he's got a spear in his hand. And so many of us who own firearms, I own firearms, but how many of us 
are, 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 are banking on that. How many of us, right, quote the Constitution more than the gospel? How many of us are like, hey, you know what I've got in my hand? I'm not afraid because I have a gun. You know what I've got in my hand? Money. <laughs> I've got a 401k and I've got a house and I can wither this storm because what we're going to do is just hunker down and we're going to turn more internalized than ever and just let this storm blow past. This whole story, what is it you're trying to get into your hand? What is it that you have in your hand? Because that's what, the, what it's about. What's giving you power? What are you holding on to? 1 Samuel 23, 14, the whole passage ends with the strongest hands in the cosmos. This whole story is about what's in your hand or not in your hand, whose hand you're in and whose hand you're not in. This is what it says at the end of the passage in verse 14. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David, on the run and in hiding, hides in various strongholds of the wilderness. And we think, that's smart. That's what we should do. You know what we should do is go to Montana and build a stronghold. We should do it. We should go into the mountains of Mount Rainier and we should build a stronghold because that's what's saving David, right? Except that's not the stronghold that's saving him. David's fortress is not made of rock or wood. It's not in numbers. It's not wealth. It's not his own strength. It's not AR-15s. It's not 401Ks. It's not vaccinations. It's not a Christian ghetto. It's not a mask. It's not not a mask. (laughs) David's fortress is not of this world. David is in God's hands, so nothing can touch him. David is wearing his ephod, and because of our fears, and because we are besieged by enemies, let his divinely inspired verses be the stone of the fortress. Let us build with this. Let us build an ark with this. Psalm 31.5, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Psalm 31.5, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Psalm 31.15, my times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Are your times in the hands of God? Are you in the hands of God? Do not look to your enemies. Do not look to what does or doesn't rest in your hands. David's strength is not what rests in his hands, but in whose hands he rests. That is how we build. That is how we fight. That is how we know whether to run or to fight or to do both. This is the ark in which we are going to find salvation. All along, it's because he's in the Lord's hands. He not only knows what to do, but he prevails. Because the Lord's hands are the strongest hands in the cosmos. Are your times in his hands? Are you in his hands? Stop focusing on what is or isn't in your hands. Focus more on in whose hands you rest. And let that be your strength. Let that be your wisdom. Let that be your surety. Let that be your guiding light. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for Samuel and David and their ministry, Lord, for the salvation, Lord, that you always bring your people. Uh, it's varied. It requires a great deal of wisdom and understanding, Lord, to discern the times that we're in, to know what to do. But I pray, God, that as we go from here, that we would tell ourselves, that we would tell one another, that our times are in your hands, that we are in your hands. Let us not be people with a spear, Lord, but let us be people with a harp.
Let us make music to you. Let us rejoice in you. Let us look to you and serve you and love you. Let us take responsibility, Lord, because we are your people, because we are your priests, because we are your kings and queens. Let us rise up, Lord, and not be afraid, but let us be bold. And let us worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And by that, let us tear down the strongholds of the enemy. Amen.